0: Miss the show, no worries on point and on the podcast. One year into this pandemic, data revealing 75% of Canadians are now suffering addiction and mental health issues. That's why doctors have launched a new campaign calling on all levels of government to realize everything is not okay. Will China ever be held to account for their lies and deceiving the world about COVID? And what came out about the two Michaels that really could spell uh, the seal of their fate? And we'll talk about an Ontario budget that is coming out in a couple of months that will give us an idea of recovering. But as we talk about this third wave and a threat of new lockdowns, how do you recover if you're still in the storm? Let's get talking.
1: All right. You just don't ever get to call. I'm getting through to you? That's mind. the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.
0: Listening. <laughs> WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized
2: as a pandemic.
0: Uh, The declaration that came way too little, way too late, and our experts still getting it wrong. And I wish I could wash away the last year. I mean, it has has absolutely been a tough one for everyone. And you wonder, what have we learned? I think we've learned a lot. We've learned a lot in many different ways. We've learned it was never a low risk. Uh, We were not prepared, and yeah, we actually did have something to worry about. And that declaration you heard, that's one of those where were you moments. So I remember it vividly. I was uh, driving back from the doctor when all of a sudden Dr. Ghebreyes came on the radio and declared the pandemic, and I I literally thought to myself, well, no crap, Sherlock. Like, what's taking you so long? And of course, it's because they put their trust in China, which at that time was lying to the world despite all these warnings from Chinese doctors back in December. Remember them? He, they got online. They warned the world of this virus, and many of them either disappeared or ended up uh, dying. And here at home, what were our officials doing? Well, they were, uh, listen to just listen to the spin.
1: Uh, that we are in a good
0: position as a country
1: to be able to meet those anticipated surges. Putting
0: a mask on an asymptomatic person is not beneficial, obviously, if you're not infected. The long-term
1: implications of shutting down borders uh, is one, they're not very effective in controlling disease, as in fact, they're not effective at all. And secondly, they actually long-term can create a greater risk to global public health. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Yeah. And yet, one year later, here we are with travel restrictions. Again, too little, too late. And we we talked about COVID for months as it was oceans away. We were watching it from the sidelines. And, you know, we had all this experience from SARS. And yet the experts here at home, they let the train wreck happen. I mean, they just kept telling us, low risk, don't overreact, we're prepared. It was literally like Baghdad Bob. I don't know if you remember that guy during the Iraq war. Um, he kept saying, we're winning, everything's good. Uh, you know, And then behind him, you see all the American troops walking into uh, the city, uh, and, and clearly they weren't winning. And we had a lot of evidence that this, this virus was in fact brought in from a man who came directly from Wuhan. And what did the experts do? Well, of course, they virtue signaled. The stigma, to be honest, is more dangerous than the virus itself and let's really underline that a stigma is the most dangerous enemy yeah okay i mean wokeism is a virus unto itself i should say but that was march 2nd that was march 2nd 2020 and that dum dum's still in charge and you know you look back and you kind of, kind of chronologically look at what went wrong And you go back, you go back to December 2020, and that that is the first time the the Trudeau government had been warned COVID's coming. And of course, they ignored it. They had shut down Canada's world-famous pandemic warning system back in 2019, and Health Canada was gutted um, of actual scientists. And what they did was fill it with inexperienced bureaucrats who worried, you know, more about these catchy talking points, but they had absolutely no experience in health or science. And so For three months, we got misinformation, 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 and spin, if not, you know, accusations of racism. I mean, you look to the date, January 29th in 2020. Dr. Tam was actually in a committee, and she was saying that we should improve social media literacy because, as she said, quote, Canadians were becoming overly panicked by coronavirus, and the epidemic of fear could be more difficult to control than the epidemic itself. I mean, it's like the WHO wrote that for her. And then you look to February. The U.S. closed travel to China. And there, Patty Hajdu stood in Parliament and scolded the Conservatives for suggesting the same. Quote, One of the interesting elements of the coronavirus outbreak, she said, has been the spread of misinformation and fear across Canadian society. And then she accused the Conservatives of sensationalizing the risk to Canadians. And in late February, I was going through some of these comments and tweets and that. I mean, Patty Heide was still tweeting late February that the risk to Canadians is low. And all you had to do was look around the world. There were 60 countries that had cases and there were already 3,000 people dead. And while all this is going on, Dr. Tam still tweeting about stigma and discrimination and telling us masks don't work. And she would use that talking point, masks don't work, masks don't work, until late May when all of a sudden uh, they figured, oh, maybe they'll help. I mean, Trudeau refused to close the borders because he called it a, quote, knee-jerk reaction that actually won't keep people safe. All the while, Italy's being ravaged, ravaged. Thousands of people are sick. They're in lockdowns, and the elderly are being wiped out by the thousands. And yet here, we still had time to do something, and all we got were talking points, don't overreact. We were being told, go eat in your favorite Chinese restaurant. Chinese people weren't eating eating out. They knew what was coming. And what we didn't do was heed what I think was one of the most important things and probably the only thing the WHO got right from the very doctor who stopped the Ebola virus from ravaging the world. And here's what his warning was a year ago.
3: Be fast. Uh, have no regrets. You must be the first mover. The virus will always get you if you don't move quickly. Uh, And you need to be prepared. And I I say this, one of the great things in emergency response, and anyone who's involved in emergency response will know this, if you need to be right before you move, you will never win.
0: Remember that guy? Dr. Ryan. Very clear message. Don't wait. And that's exactly what we did. We waited. We waited. And politicians, the experts, as they are called, I mean, they squandered months, months of warning to prepare. We wouldn't have stopped this thing from coming in, but we certainly could have gotten prepared a lot better than we did. Maybe we could have actually put in protections for the elderly. You know, I mean, otherwise, how do you explain? You know, we've got 22,000 people who have died, over 300,000 people sickened, millions have lost their livelihoods and we're still months from being freed of this thing because now we got to get ready for the third wave oh yes the third wave is now coming they say driven by the variants and of course we don't have any other strategy so they're already saying we're probably going to have to do yet another lockdown and the third one will probably work this time We're also told by the WHO, don't use lockdowns as your only strategy. And that is the only strategy we have because we've learned nothing from the many, many, many mistakes that these people in charge seem insistent on repeating. So here we are a year later. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson, On Point. This is Global News Radio. Even before COVID hit, you know, we were not really okay. We knew that there was an opiate crisis. We knew mental health issues had been on the rise and they weren't being addressed. And then you fast forward through this last year, we got millions out of work. Lockdowns are isolating everyone. Kids have been falling behind in school. Parents are trying to keep their sanity. Families are being split apart. You've got exhausted health care workers. Burnout is replacing a good workout and then you put the side the virus aside and mental health issues are now at a crisis point. You look at the new data that has now just been released. 75% of Canadians are now suffering either addiction or mental health issues. And for all the money announced by different levels of government during this crisis, there's still not nearly enough services available for those who need help, and sadly a lot of them don't know how to ask. And this brings us to this new campaign, and it's a pretty sobering campaign called Everything is Not Okay. And it's designed to kind of wake up all levels of government to actually start taking actions so that we can hopefully avert, I think, what is going to be a massive shadow pandemic that could last decades. Catherine Zahn is President and CEO at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. She she joins us now. Good to have you, Catherine. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. It's just sad that we have to have you. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, this was a problem before. What are you seeing, you know, over the last few months? Uh, and what are you seeing now in the areas of mental health and, and addiction?
2: Well, the list you started with is uh it was quite sobering actually just to listen to you say it out loud because it's one of those things we write down or we uh we talk amongst ourselves about but to hear it from a from a third party uh so starkly is uh, uh, doubly sobering for me and uh uh the the thing i want to pick up on is your point that that during the pandemic there's been this constant refrain that somehow after the pandemic as if the pandemic has caused this, there'll be a second pandemic of mental illness. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, uh, it's uh, so true that uh, uh, people in need of care and supports faced long waits for access, assessments, treatments, and supports way before the pandemic. Uh, this is a concern that's been, uh, been expressed for for, for years uh, you mentioned that the, uh, the, the the pandemic the illness itself fears surrounding that the, um, uh, the impact of isolation with the public health measures uh, and of course the economic downturn those are all things that have uh, added to the stress of, of uh, uh, even even the, uh, the most emotionally unhealthy human beings
0: I mean uh- I can only speak to what I'm going through. I've been in my house now, I feel like for an eternity, and I kind of think of that movie, The Shining, and you laugh and you think, well, now you know what isolation can do to people. But truly, I mean, I've had anxiety like I've never had before. I mean, there's all sorts of things going on. And you think of what household to household to household. Imagine being a business owner who's lost their restaurant or, you know, a retail store through no fault of their own. Or you think of the addict who is already suffering before and hasn't been able to get help. There's so many variants that are facing people who probably never had an issue before and find themselves now not really knowing where to turn? Because one of the things is I've noticed is that for all the announcements we get from the federal government, the provincial government, there's all this money being thrown around. But a lot of people don't know how to navigate the system because it's so complex. Mm,
2: uh Yes, yes yes, and no, and I think that, the, uh, that this is part of our call to action to, uh, uh, to address these issues surrounding access to care or uh, wait times as they're, as they're commonly uh, understood. So access to care for uh, depression and anxiety, uh, to addiction services, to care for children with complex mental health needs and, uh, and uh, for people with complex mental illness. And one of the things that uh, as, a, as, a, uh, as a group... We hope to uh, achieve is an understanding of uh, what, what what is the best mechanism to create some sort of a uh, a hub system or a single point access system for for mm-hmm. individuals to help them navigate to uh, the right place at the uh, at the right time. And I and I and I do feel that I need to put in like a little public service announcement that uh, yeah uh, that that there that um, uh, there 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 is definitely a concern about people who have had the experience of mental illness prior to the pandemic, lest they lose their connections to their care and supports, fall through the cracks. Um, yeah. uh, and, and during the pandemic, it's important for us to understand the, uh, the difference between those normal feelings of sadness, loneliness, isolation, and grief, uh, and when they spill over into, uh, into a danger point when you really, really need to access care.
0: Yeah, it's almost like we need a concierge service uh, of where to direct people because it's just uh, when people need help, they often won't ask for it. But we have so many, when you really step back, as you say, and kind of look at the complexities, there's the addictions issues of all sorts, but then there's age categories. We've got kids right now who are not just falling behind in school, but but eating disorders are going up, which is not something that just goes away, that stays with, mm-hmm. a, with a person for their life. I mean, these these issues don't just go away once we get a few months of help into them. And so I don't even know where you start to tackle, um, you know, the, the issues that are going to be confronting our, our mental health services. You start with a commitment
2: and uh, with a, uh, a concrete investment beso- behind the words uh mm-hmm. the, this is this has been done before in other areas of the health care in the cancer system uh in heart interventions in joint surgery and cataract surgery uh, a yeah. very specific um, mandate to reduce uh wait times or increase access to care associated with uh, an appropriate uh, funding envelope to uh uh to create the services that are uh, are 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 um, are falling behind, and and then a um, and then then a one of the things as as I said that we, we hope uh, to see in our uh, in, in the near future is some sort of um, of a uh, coordination of access to um, um, to uh, to care.
0: Does seventy five percent that that number does it surprise you or did you expect that? Uh, I think that
2: you have to remember that that is that is people reporting distress. Uh, So So it could be, could be higher. it's, it, it could be, it could be higher. It could be, uh, I, yeah. I think it's pretty fair to say that probably closer to 90 or hundred percent of people are feeling, uh, are feeling some of these uh, negative feelings. Uh, but again, it is, uh, uh, it depends on the degree and, uh, the, um, uh, the access that one has to personal supports, uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to, family, social supports, uh, uh, you know, what, what the economic situation is, uh, whether, whether this actually spills over into, uh, um, Serious depression, uh, the um, the, uh, uh, the the urge to turn to substances to uh, alleviate some of the uh, uh, the anxiety or distress, or if it exacerbates a pre-existing uh, 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 mental illness.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think for a lot of people, they're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But if we get this third wave and there are more restrictions and the summer's affected by it, I mean that mm-hmm. that could take it to a totally different level. Is that your concern? Is that you know uh, we're I, not going to get ahead of this?
2: I think uh, the, from the from the the COVID point of view, I probably am not qualified to comment. From the mental uh, yeah. uh, the the mental health point of view, uh, I think that 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 all of us have um, uh, been been hopeful that uh, yeah. there there will with vaccines on the horizon, with spring coming, with uh, summer and people Mm -hmm. being able to be more out of doors, that we will see some relief. Uh, And I think it remains to be determined
0: what the uh, impact of the new variants are. Yeah, gee, it's such a battle uh, ahead, but certainly no question. Um, I I hope that the the money is, you know, that we're hearing about is getting to where it needs to get and the campaign certainly will catch attention because it's quite uh, it's quite uh, eye-opening. Catherine, thank you for your time. Uh, you're most welcome. And the last message I want to leave you is that yeah. the whole system is ready,
2: willing, and able to work together towards uh, uh, towards achieving some real positive outcomes for uh, those who have the experience of mental illness. We're just waiting for a system mandate and
0: focused funding. And just quickly, just, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to let the opportunity pass. If someone does need help and they're thinking, gee, like, I, I wouldn't even know where to start, where do they start?
2: There's, uh, there, there, there are, are many, many opportunities, the one that I'm most familiar with, because I'm from CAMH, is uh, a starting point at www.camh.ca, and that will also have links to some of the other services. CMHA and Children's and Mental Health Ontario, CMHO, will also have lots of online services to start.
0: Right, and, and one thing I do notice about KMH is when you call, um, there is someone that will say, hold on, do you need, do you need help? Like They're very quick to, to make sure that whoever they've got on the line is getting to where they need to go instead of just hanging up on someone, so there is that. Catherine, appreciate your time. Thank you. That is Catherine Zahn, President and CEO at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. So let's get ahead of this third wave, because boy, oh boy, people need the reprieve, they need the summer, they need a spring, they need to be able to kind of just Get some light into their life. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson with you on point. This is Global News Radio. China lied and millions died. And I know that might sound a little trite, but it is true. Um, Because China knew that there was a lethal outbreak of a virus that threatened the world, and for weeks they lied. It did not tell the WHO. And the WHO was naive enough to trust the propaganda China was feeding in. And then, of course, while the world was looking away, China went around the world buying up all the PPE and choking off the rest of us from this life-saving protective gear we didn't have. And then making it worse, what little PPE Canada did have, the government handed to China. Sixteen tons of PPE was given to China, leaving us with nothing. And the WHO only now recently has been allowed into the country to investigate the source of the outbreak. But of course, they were limited with where they could go. And whatever evidence could have been found, I'm pretty sure China destroyed it like months ago. So the question then becomes, you know, will China ever be held accountable I mean, can it be held to account? Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute. He's also founder of Disinfo Watch Org. also an expert in Russia, Eastern Europe, and Asian affairs. He joins us now. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Kind of seems like the most complex but easy question ever, but will and can China ever be held to account for what's uh, happened in the last year?
3: Uh, that's, uh, that's a great question. It's... Um you know, it's almost a year ago when I, I first heard this question and it was, uh, it was actually Dana Bash on CNN mm-hmm. who brought it up during a debate between uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And she said, she asked, what consequences should China face for its role yeah. in the global crisis? And that, you know, that was a year ago. And it doesn't seem like China's really let up from any of its uh, sort of monkey business when it comes to, uh, you know, engaging in disinformation, uh, hiding facts, Um, you know, there's an ongoing campaign that I'm seeing where they're um, trying to sow doubts about Western vaccines. Um, And they continue doing this. Um, You know, the question, are we going to be able to hold them accountable? I hope so. I think that we need to have a a full investigation of of allied Western countries. Um, You know, this is never going to happen under, you know, the uh, jurisdiction of the, of the UN. We're never going to have a, an objective accounting or an investigation with them. So I think it's it's really up to um, Canada, the United States, uh, it's European allies, Australia, Japan, Taiwan. Um, these nations that have really been affected by it and have been you know fighting the uh, the virus. It's up to us to come together and and have that investigation and really tally the costs and figure out what genuinely happened. Uh, over a year ago in uh, in Wuhan
0: that that inspires such little confidence uh, to think that either the biden administration uh, i mean maybe they'll get bullish on this but certainly not the trudeau government australia uh would would be um you know able to stand up taiwan i certainly yeah. have faith in their leadership but it just doesn't uh, inspire confidence that that anything will happen and especially given um china did not let any country in uh to certainly the source of this which was the Wuhan wet market or maybe even as many had speculated a, a, a lab you know was this ever weaponized I mean, there's no way we can get our hands on that kind of evidence really what we have are these doctors who as you well know spoke well, out in December and many of those people those doctors are now dead
3: well yeah you're, you're absolutely right I mean let's put aside the the possibility that this would have been developed in a lab let's let's just ignore that had it and the likelihood is is that this this virus emerged in one of those wet markets And it was back in December. And you're absolutely right. Um, You had a number of doctors. uh, uh, Dr. Ai Fen, who in December identified the fact that there was this uh, really dangerous uh, SARS-like virus that was emerging. She alerted her colleagues to it, who then alerted the local Wuhan authorities. Instead of, you know, alerting Beijing, what they did is they moved to disappear and silence those doctors Mm -hmm. that were raising awareness of it. And, you know, Erwin Kotler wrote a piece, the former uh, famous liberal justice minister and uh, a very well-known advocate of of international human rights. He wrote wrote last year that um, there was a 40-day period where Beijing really had an opportunity to tackle this problem mm-hmm. and had they done so at the appropriate time and there's there's a, a study by the university of southampton that supports this that had they done this even 3 weeks earlier the transmission of covid would have been reduced by 95%. If they'd reduced it by 95% and this is just by people talking to each other and doing the right, right thing at the right time in china had they done that we may—it's—it's it's entirely likely that we wouldn't have been in this situation. we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now, and we wouldn't have lost—you know—millions of lives, cost trillions of dollars, and then that's exactly what we need to uh, investigate.
0: And China, needs right? To but but but, but it's from. not in their interest. I mean, at some point they probably saw this and said, you know what? This would actually probably be good for us, you know. You weaken our adversaries. You um, destroy the West. You you bring them to their knees. I mean, look, China's <laughs> done very. Uh, I mean, they're out of this thing, and and um, they'll never be honest. And the WHO decided to trust them, and and so they they've gotten away with a lot already. Um, and they know that they can. I mean, they're using the two Michaels in a constant, uh, s- a source of uh, manipulation. Um, and so I, I just don't, uh, I-, I think they've actually realized that this pandemic, um, you know, weaponizing it to sorts has done them a great service. And they've got propagandists, as you well know, all over the world spreading this misinformation, yeah. uh, continuing to destabilize us. Um, you know, so it doesn't bode well for, for, I think, getting, uh, getting to the bottom of this. But, but further to the, to the point on the two Michaels, um, word today is that any day now they could be in trial and they only have to give Canada, if they have to at all, three days notice that a trial is pending. But if this thing goes into a court and these two men go before a judge, it's almost over for them.
3: Yeah, it's uh, from everything that I've read from the analysis, it, it, you know, it does seem that uh, once it goes to trial, um, there will be a quick verdict. And when the verdict comes out, uh, There's, it becomes very, very difficult uh, within the Chinese system to uh, to reverse that. So because
0: um, it will be guilty. There's no question of it. It will be guilty.
3: Well, sure. I mean, these uh, these the, the two Michaels were arbitrarily de- detained, and yeah. um, you know, based on no evidence. I mean, fabricated charges. So if they if they if they've been detained for two years on fabricated charges, how on earth are they going to uh, you know miraculously emerge from this uh, court process? Free. It's it's not mm-hmm. it's not going to happen at at this point, and I think Canada needs to do needs to prepare for uh, that eventuality and uh, and and finally impose or introduce some sort of co- consequences for uh, for China's behavior um, because uh, you know clearly w- whatever we've been doing with the kid gloves that we've had on our hands it's it's not working. Mm-hmm.
0: No, it's not. And you know, um, Romeo Dallaire is speaking out. You know, saying that we have to. Stop acting in self-interest and start actually standing up against things like the genocide of the Uyghur Muslims. We have to start showing a bit of backbone because China knows that it can get away with, you know, uh, spreading a virus. Uh, They can arbitrarily detain people for hostage diplomacy and get away with it. They can take things out on our farmers, our canola farmers, and all they have to do is steal a couple of Canadians or steal a couple of Americans or maybe next time it'll be Australians because it works very well for them to get what they want.
3: Yeah, I mean, why would you not continue behaving this way if if there's right. no one standing up to it there's there sure. are absolutely no consequences for them behaving this way so um and they're winning they, they just continue mm-hmm. to win so you know canada does need and I, I i you know we've talked about this um for what for the past uh, year and a half and every time we talk about it, we talk about the need to impose sanctions. We need to, the, the need to adopt legislation to ensure that anyone profiting from slave labor, from those, those, the million Uyghurs who are yeah. forced to toil, um, to make sure that Canadian companies aren't profiting from this. We keep saying this, and it's, it's like a broken record. And, yeah. you know, if, if we, don't really, we don't do anything, the, the two Michaels are not going to be the, the last Canadians yeah. who are detained. You know, and the, and you know, going back to our you know, COVID, the Chinese government is going to continue pumping disinformation mm-hmm. into our information environment in order to distract us, to to make us doubt our vaccines, and uh, and make us sicker. You know, it's yeah. I don't know what it will take at this point for the Canadian government, for this government, uh, to to act and act in concert with uh, with our allies.
0: Now that we'd. Uh Take growing a set of cojones, as they say, but uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Marcus, I always appreciate your time.
3: Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on.
0: Marcus Kolga joining us, but uh, the headline—if that—if um, the two Michaels are, are taken to trial, um, you know that that it doesn't need Canadians to wake up. They've already awoken. They want action. By the Canadian government. And so uh, we'll wait and see how that story develops because it's an alarming uh, revelation that came out this morning. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. March 24th, that is the day Ontario's new finance minister, Peter Peter Bethlenfalvy, will table his first budget. But this is the second. Ontario pandemic budget we're getting and it will be again a wash in red because so much money has been spent billions and it's not going to stop anytime soon and uh, remember this is a government that ran on austerity which is a pretty tough pill to swallow but we're going to get an idea now of uh, how we're going to climb out of this deep COVID hole which will set records for massive deficit spending but um, we're told that they're not going to cut anything. We're told that there won't be tax hikes, so I'm not sure how all this is going to get paid back. We're also going to get an idea, finally, of the recovery plan, and they're going to talk about targeted help for areas like hospitality and tourism, which continue to get decimated, and what will happen if there's a further third wave. But this is a second full budget the province has delivered during this pandemic, unlike the federal government, the Trudeau government, which refuses to table a budget, and they use the pandemic as the excuse Ian Lee, professor over at Carleton University Sprunt School of Business, joining us and uh, trying to square that circle there.
1: Good afternoon, Alex.
0: How are you? So um we're getting we're getting our second Ontario budget. We haven't seen a federal budget. Right. Um which doesn't make any sense because we actually really do need to see a federal uh, budget. So let me pick on the feds for for a second here. You know, Christopher Freeland said uh, not too long ago that the budget she'll deliver in the spring will be the most consequential of our time and yet we are not going to see it anytime soon.
1: I'm, I think that this is uh, very uh, problematic. Um, budgets are relied upon. They're not just political documents, as, as politicians may think. Um, investors rely on them. They look at, because governments are huge economic actors. Uh, yeah. You know, the federal government, the government of Canada, the, the, the federal and provincial governments in Canada are about 42% of the totality of the economy. They take up 42% of GDP. So that's yeah. almost a half. That's approaching a half they're huge. I mean, you know, the federal, the federal government is spending, uh, they're running deficits uh, in the mid threes of, uh, you know, 350 billion or thereabouts. They were spending 600 billion before the COVID. So, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, they're huge actors. Investors depend on them. And uh, they, and as well as uh, you know, businesses. And so, yeah. the fact that this information is not being disclosed of where the government is going, how much they're going into debt for, and so forth, is is something that's very, uh, you know, it's it's just bad precedent, bad policy.
0: Well, it's bad policy, but it's also probably very strategic because they do not want to go to the polls and release a budget because I think uh, Canadians would probably f- literally fall off their seat. But a huge part of Ontario's budget is going to be about health spending, spending which, of course, comes from the Trudeau government, and they have told the provinces that they're going to give them more money um, unless that's all talk.
1: That's right. Uh, you know, when you look at the spending of the, um, and I'm referring to the budget, to the Ontario budget from uh, last year. So these are, very, you know, fairly fresh, uh, fresh numbers. Um, the health sector, the healthcare care sector uh, spends, as we probably all, everyone guess, guesses, mm-hmm. uh, they, it, it's just gargantuan. It, it was prior, it was 60, prior to the pandemic, it was $64 billion a year. And that, that just dwarfs everything else, education, post-secondary education, justice, environment, children, social services, that sort of thing. And it's approaching, it's now approaching about not quite half. The easiest way to think of health care is it's not quite half of the total spending of provincial governments in Canada, including Ontario. That's yeah. how enormous it is. And it's going to get bigger going forward because of aging. And not to mention COVID, of course, which is really ratcheted up, but aging yeah. all by itself because we're, uh, we're going from 12 percent of the population over 65 to 25 percent. And older people, and this is hard data from this, from can, older people consume a lot more health care in dollars sure. per person than younger people, not to criticize them. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. the body's wearing out. <laughs> and, uh, and so- Really
0: quickly these days, yes, I, yes, I think we're yeah. aging faster now than we, <laughs> we are out because I'm right. feeling it. So but that's nonetheless, why I'm it's.
1: So concerned about this.
0: Sure, um, I was surprised, though, to see. I mean, the, the, Peter um is is a pretty prudent guy. He's a he's yep. a Bay Street guy. Yep. He he does believe that he can get a recovery plan going, and surprisingly, Quebec and Ontario, the two hardest provinces hit by um COVID, are expected to actually lead growth um, with the GDP surging six point five percent in you know in twenty twenty one. That's that's pretty interesting.
1: It doesn't surprise me or shock me. and I'll explain why. First off, they, you know, they're, they're both enormous. I mean, uh, Ontario mm-hmm. is 38% of the totality of Canada, one province. Quebec is another 20%. So those two provinces together are just a, a hair under two-thirds of the totality of our country. That's the first mm-hmm. point. They're really big. The second point is they're very diversified. Um, yes, yeah. yeah, of course. We know about manufacturing in in southern Ontario, the auto industry, for example. There's also you know appliances, uh, but there's a lot of other light manufacturing that goes on there and in Quebec. And then let's not forget about the services sector. And every time I say that, people say, "You know, you mean a McDonald's?" No, mm-hmm. I'm in the services sector and education. Healthcare is the services sector. Uh, government. Anybody in a high-rise building is basically in the services sector. And then we do have an agricultural sector. So the point being that it's a uh, there's very large economies they're they're diversified and and so it doesn't surprise me that they're going to lead the way because they're not um, overly dependent on one sector like for example the Western provinces are or for that matter the Maritimes
0: but here's the but you know we just got modeling out uh, earlier this afternoon, and um, they say that covid uh, reduction has now stalled so th- the the best case scenario has now passed us, and now they're threatening that um, we're going to have these variants driving us up into this third wave and, and there are again the threats of. But shutdowns. And so if we get yet another third wave, which is just tr- truly unbelievable to me that, you know, a year in, this is where we're at, it, would that be factored into to this budget? Or is that just another, well, we got to wait and see? Like, how do you how do you predict recovery when we're not even out of the storm?
1: Right, right. I'm going to make a prediction that they're not going to factor in a third wave. Uh, I think that they will... Deal with it uh, in his comments in the in the Legislative Assembly, and he'll say something to the effect. We have confidence that the, the, uh, the vaccination program is going to be accelerated. And mm-hmm. it, so they're, they're almost running a race against time in the sense, can they outrun the virus? So to, I'm using mm-hmm. metaphors, but, you know. Yeah, it hasn't
0: virus, worked well yet.
1: <laughs> the virus is rocketing through, but then sure. we're hopefully hopefully rocketing through with, with immunization, because once you wow. immunize, you bring it to a dead halt. I mean, the, the evidence thus far is it doesn't matter which you know i know there's a debate by some people saying which which uh, vaccine everything i'm reading by the by the professional immunologists are saying look they're all very very effective but the problem mm-hmm. is we've done such a poor job in canada at rolling it out compared to the uk or israel or the yeah. us and i'm not talking absolutes i'm talking uh, number of people vaccinated per 100,000 of population where we are very very slow and i hope that mm-hmm. they address that in the budget that they're going to put, they're going to spend more money. How about spending more, much more money, into ramping that thing, that, that vaccination up, so that we get everybody, so that the, in this race, this foot race against the virus, so to speak.
0: Yeah, we're so far behind. And, and, and if we're running a strategy on hope, uh, then, you know, we're not going to get ahead of this variance, because uh, we just don't have the the vaccines that everyone else has. And so, you know, I think it's going to get um, very interesting in the next little while, certainly for businesses, as well, as you know, have just yeah. been crushed by this, we need to open up and, and I feel like those in charge are just going to lock us down, which will be An unmitigated disaster for the service industry, tourism, all these places that, as you say, are the diversified um, places that we can depend on to bring back our economy.
1: Alex, I'm in complete agreement. I think a a third lockdown would be just devastating. I mean, what Mm -hmm. I've been so pleased about is not the politicians, Uh, it's the Mm -hmm. resilience of the economy when it Mm -hmm, comes to the mm -hmm. lockdown. Um, You know, they have consistently, the policymakers, the government, the politicians, have consistently underestimated the resilience. And, uh, I mean, it came back very strongly because uh, our business sector, our private sector is very innovative, and they're very adaptive, and they've done uh, an amazing job. But, they're, you know, yeah. they've had their hands tied behind their backs, so to speak, by governments and public health that want to lock them down. As you know, we're, we're in agreement on this. I've been very, very critical of the lockdowns, and I'm not denying uh covid and i'm not denying that it's a uh, problematic of course it is and it's deadly for older people i'm one of them uh but mm. that doesn't mean we should lock down the whole society because it's deadly for a subset of the population yes that subset should isolate themselves which is what i've been doing and and lots of people like me but uh, shutting there there is a more surgical and more efficacious yeah. way of dealing with it uh, rather than shutting down the economy and, of course, denying health care to all those uh, people that need health care for something other than COVID, such as cancer treatment or what have you.
0: Yeah, we've had really piss-poor government policy on this and, uh, yeah. and the fact that some businesses have really been able to, to be so resilient is, uh, is a testament to who they are and uh, hats off to them. Wait and see, Ian. I hope you get your vaccine soon so you can come out of that house of yours.
1: <laughs> so do I. Thanks very much.
0: Thanks. That's Yen Lee joining us here. So we'll uh, wait and see, because our only strategy is lockdowns, and it uh, hasn't worked yet, but uh, I guess we'll try them again. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. You can join us, of course, live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.